Hello and welcome to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. My name is John DeLille, and I'm the communications guy at Free Life Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each week, Senior Pastor Dan Willis brings a rich, detailed, and relevant message grounded in Scripture, which is recorded on Sunday mornings and made available for you right here. You can find more messages at freelifecc.com or in the Google Play and iTunes podcast app. Hey, if you've benefited from listening to these messages, we ask that you try to help us out. You can help us out in two different ways. First, you can give us a rating in the app store that you use. Secondly, share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a colleague. This really does help us to get these messages into the hands of the people who can really benefit from them. This week, you'll hear from FLCC Executive Pastor Chris Robinson. This is based on a question. Uh, if you've ever heard me preach before, I, I like questions. And I'm a problem solver and things like that. And a lot of times things come across my path, either through books, I listen to podcasts. Uh, John DeLille has introduced me to a couple that I just have stuck with. One's called the Eternal Leadership Podcast, and the other one's called the Entree Leadership Podcast. One's done by, uh, Entree Leadership's done by Dave Ramsey, if you're familiar with him. He does the financial stuff, and he's got a radio show, stuff like that. Eternal Leadership is done by another gentleman by the name of John Ramstead. John was in a serious accident, almost took his life, and he credits God to basically bring him out of death and basically waking him up saying, okay, here's this life that I've given you, don't waste it. And so with that, um, he has done a lot of great things. He interviews a lot of great Christian people as well in leadership roles, and so it's really nice to hear them and refreshing. And... So this question is generated from a lot, uh, some of their thoughts, some other things Pastor Dan has been sharing um, with some of the people in the church. The question is this, as Christ's body, so that's what the church is, is it not? Is it a ridiculous idea to be relational and engaging? Think about that for a second. Is it a ridiculous idea to be relational and engaging? You know the answer, right? But what does your life say the answer is? Because your actions, regardless of how you think, your actions determine what you believe and how you will answer that question. But the church answer is, well, no, it's not, it's not a ridiculous idea. The church should be relational. The church should be engaging, right? But are we, especially in a time of pandemic, when we probably should be relational and, and engaging the most? Would you disagree that we're in, a, in an unprecedented time? A time like no other, right? I don't know anybody in here that could say that they've ever gone through something quite like this. Would you disagree that every organization is not immune to this? Not just church, but everyone is being hit by this pandemic. You don't have to look any further than Disney World. Their attendance is way down. So much so that a billion dollar company is estimating a loss of 1.4 billion, be with a boy, dollars 
because of the coronavirus. Now, the flip side of that is I uh, spoke with one of my coworkers whose brother just went on vacation down at Disney, and they had the time of their lives. Do you know why? Because nobody was there. <laughs> Except for workers, you know, they, they literally got onto every ride, he said, without a line. Now, Disney does, you know, if you pick a ride on your phone, they'll tell you when it's ready kind of thing, which Holiday World has adopted, which is one thing, or one reason, I should say, that I didn't want to mess with bring, taking the youth down there. But nonetheless, they had the time of their lives down at Disney. Now, Disney will make up $1.4 billion with just one family going, because it's that expensive, but, but nonetheless. Pandemic aside, it looks like churches, however, are progressively finding themselves on the decline. According to Barna Research, since 2012, attendance across all generations has decreased up to 13%. Bernie. Sorry about that. In an article written by Carrie Newoff, uh, titled, Attendance is Dying, What Next? He says crisis is an accelerator, and trends that might have taken years to manifest often arrive overnight. You can make a strong argument, then, that the low return to church attendance thing that's going on in everybody's churches is a reflection of where we may have been 10 years from now. I know that's not what a lot of the older generation wants to hear, but as we become more and more digital in life, there was a good case that 10 years, a decade from now, church would have looked completely different than what it looks like right now, and it may need to at some point, but that's not what I'm saying right now. He says basically because crisis is an accelerator, we're at the point where we may have been a decade a lot faster. To go, to go along with that, I heard a guy commenting on the U.S. marketplace and infrastructure, basically saying that when crisis hits and we don't have the ability to pivot or respond in such a way that keeps us on track with what we've always said or our core values, he's implying that what we've designed up to that point is not sustainable and may be broken. So am I implying that church is broken? Am I implying that the model that we have for church right now is not sustainable? Not necessarily. Now, it probably seems like I'm being really negative towards church. And I know the current pandemic has turned our worlds upside down. But what I think is that we need to understand that in moments like this, this gives us a chance to see things a little bit more clearly and ask questions like I did at the very beginning and answer questions that, are, that require deep thought. So if attendance is lower everywhere and church attendance specifically has been on the decline, could it be that maybe, just maybe, that there's something deeper going on out in the world within humanity? 
that just doesn't affect churches, that affects other organizations. So that's why I put this together and said, basically, there's two feelings or attitudes, I think, that's killing the church body specifically. So if the church is made up of the people that go there, they're the body, there's two attitudes slash feelings within those people, all of us, that is ultimately killing us. They're universal. Every individual, family, organization, and church face them. Why? Because they're part of humanity. The first of which we can find in an oh-so-familiar story. Actually, two stories. Beginning at Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to be reading from the message translation. I find the message to be a little bit more practical and tangible and read more like a story. That's why I'm using it. Don't get me wrong, I've got my, king, my new King James up here, but I prefer to read the message in this particular instance. The serpent was clever, more clever than any wild animal God had made. He spoke to the woman. Do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, don't eat from it, don't even touch it, or you'll die. The serpent told the woman, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything ranging all the way from good to evil. Now, I'm being a little dramatic, but did you catch how the message put it? I'll reread it. You'll be just like God. Hmm. Knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. When the woman saw that the tree looked good, you know the rest. She ended up eating from it, right? Then we move on to Genesis 4, starting at verse 3. Now, a little in between, Adam and Eve have children. I don't have to go into detail how that happens. They drink the water, I think. They have Cain first, if you didn't know that. And then they have Abel. Picking it up at verse 3. Time passes, and Cain brings an offering to God from the produce of his farm. Abel also brings an offering, but from the firstborn animals of his herd. God liked Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering didn't get his approval. Cain lost his temper and went into a sulk. The Amplified Version says, so Cain became extremely angry or indignant and looked annoyed and hostile. Or the complete Jewish Bible says that Cain was very angry and his face fell. And you may have NIV or King James or New King James where it talks about his countenance falling and he felt rejected and dejected. I think it's important to note all those emotions that are going on in Cain. You know, when you get angry, you lose sight of everything, right? 
and you almost black out. You lose, the only thing you become focused on is what made you angry. And so think in those terms of Cain here, he's angry, <laughs> to put it a better, for lack of a better word. So God speaks to Cain. He says, why this tantrum? Why the sulking? If you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is lying in wait for you, ready to pounce. It's out to get you. You, Cain, have got to master it. In other words, what I hear God saying to Cain sounds something like this. Cain, it seems like you are angry, and it looks like you are upset and discontent with your position. It seems like you need a change of heart. Would you disagree that if you do well by believing in me and doing is what is acceptable and pleasing to me, you will be accepted? Or do you want sin to overpower you so that you remain a self-centered, resentful person submerged in self-pity, anger, bitterness, and depression? Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? God is basically asking him, do you like the position you're in right now, where your heart is? And won't you, if you have a change of heart, listen to me and do what I say, things will get better? Or would you rather stay in a state of anger, state of hatred, state of self-bitterness? And you know the rest in verse 8. It says, Cain had words with his brother. Some think that he ultimately went back to Abel to talk to Abel about what God had told him. And Abel said, look, get it right. And he got mad at Abel, and you know the rest. He took his life. So James 3.16 says this, to sum it all up, wherever jealousy and selfishness are uncovered, you will find many troubles and every kind of nastiness. So the first feeling and emotion I think that's ultimately killing the church from within is envy, jealousy, or covet covetousness. The old King James, thou shalt not covet. They're all synonyms for the same thing, envy. So what is envy? Envy is a feeling of discontent or a desire to have a quality possession, or other desirable attributes belonging to someone else. It often indicates a self-centered attitude that leads to intolerance, resentment, and even hostility. Proverbs 14.30 says this about envy. A calm, peaceful, and tranquil heart is life and health to the body. But passion and envy are like rottenness to the bones. Now, is Solomon just talking about the individual? Because if, if Christ's body is made up of the different people, he's not talking just about the bones of the individual. He's talking about the bones of the body. A peaceful, a calm, and tranquil heart is life and health to the body. But passion and envy are like rottenness to the bones. So how do we become envious? Well, Satan uses envy to ambush us, wound us, and hurt us. 
It often is a result of us comparing ourselves. And comparing ourselves to the point where we're looking upward at others. Focusing on what that other person or even our circumstances, our bad luck, lack of acceptance, or even failure have made us inferior. Things like success or position. We'll look at another person and what's going on in their life. And if they're successful, well, how did they get that position? Why are they successful? They're not as smart as I am. They didn't put in the hard work like I did. What about personality? I know people that can just go up to somebody, say, hey, how are you? And then hear the rest of their life story. Me, on the other hand, I have to work for that. I'm not a very personable person. I always test out as an introvert. I have to ask questions that seem awkward to me to try to get somebody to talk about themselves. So there are people that I just tend to be envious toward because they can say, hey, how are you? And then just get your life story out of you, like no issue. Something I've been working on the last month or so. What about material possessions? We don't look at what other people have and wish we had that as well, do we? Houses, cars, purses, shoes, boats, vacations maybe even. That's not a material possession, but we don't look at what other people have and just be like, oh, man, I wish I had that. How do they afford that? Don't they know that their credit cards are maxed out? I wish I could afford that Titan XD, that silver parked in my works parking lot every day. I don't do that kind of stuff. That's very specific, but I don't do that kind of stuff. You know, houses. Jessica and I here recently have been looking at houses. We want something bigger for our family to be able to grow into. And when you look at the house that we currently live in, it's nice. There's nothing wrong with it. So then why do we need a bigger house? You know, I could say, well, I need a bigger house so I have more room to have small groups in. But God would know my heart, wouldn't he? So envious, envy, makes us feel like we're inferior. Why is this dangerous? Well, when you envy someone, how do you treat them? Now, you don't envy anybody in your life, do you? Take a second and think about somebody that you're constantly comparing yourself to, where you never measure up. Now, some of you may be way beyond that in your generation. I know I, I had to be revealed that. I constantly am comparing myself to saints in the Bible. While you might not think that's a big deal, but God had to reveal to me, look, I did not make you a Paul. I did not make you a Moses. I made you like me, like my son. Live like them or live like me. Quit constantly comparing yourself that you're not good enough, that you're not a Christian Marine, so to speak. Quit. Tell your congregation to quit looking at Pastor Dan. You're not Pastor Dan. 
He thinks and talks and acts a lot different than I do. Praise God, right? Sometimes people like to hear me speak because I'm a little bit more, I don't know, good-looking, charismatic. I don't <laughs> yeah, right? But we're different, right? He's going to be more knowledgeable than I am because he's got years of schooling. He's a, he's a doctor. He's almost a THD. You know, I like to still do a lot more of the practical application stuff like that where he gets more deep and involved. Now, I can do that, but I tend to sound like a robot when I do that, and I may do now, now but, but we're different. You know, I'm not Bill Coker either. Man, you talk about a guy that was amazing. I'm not him. I need to focus on being the best Chris I can be. Well, you all need to be focused on the best whatever your name is. While living like Christ, yes, but being the best that you can be. Quit comparing yourself to somebody else that you think is better than you. Because you know what? In all likelihood, they have problems too. You don't have to walk past any grocery store aisle if they still have them. You know, magazines, tabloids, people. Gosh, you can watch anything at like, what, 5, 30, 6 o'clock right before the news where they're talking about so-and-so got a divorce. So-and-so just made a $300 million contract, but look at all these issues they have, right? Envy is also dangerous because it's a strong motivator. Look at Eve. Let's go back to that story. God, Satan planted a seed in her heart. You don't measure up to God. You need to eat this fruit in order to be an equal with him. Guess what she did? Then what about Cain? You don't measure up to Abel. Your sacrifice doesn't mean anything. God obviously doesn't, he doesn't like you. That envy for both of them became rottenness to their bones, infiltrating their heart and led them to an action that they were not supposed to do. Eve set the example, well actually Adam set the example by not stepping in and Cain just followed it. It also, it's a strong motivator, but it also for somebody else was a very strong motivator. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. I'm going to read it from the Passion Translation. Envy took a hold of this angel's heart. The scripture says, Look how you have fallen from your heavenly place, O shining one, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the ground, you who conquered nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven and exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will rule on the mountain of the congregation on the highest place of the sacred mountain. I will rise past the tops of the clouds and rival the most high God. What angel am I speaking about here? Right? A lot of times we forget that he was an angel. And should prove to you that envy can be a very, very 
bad thing because even Satan was an angel. Satan tried to make himself equal with God and even take God's position. So the second, envy leads into pride and arrogance. The second feeling attitude, I think, destroying the church from within. Well, what is arrogance? An attitude of superiority manifested in an overbearing manner or in presumptuous claims or assumptions. Essentially, it's to be puffed up or inflated. I don't know if anybody in here has ever had a puffer fish to eat or ever seen one. But what a puffer fish does is it sucks in water to make itself bigger, to make the predator, if you will, afraid. Boy, we don't do that with our egos, do we? How do we become arrogant? Well, where envy was comparing upward at somebody, arrogance compares downward. We think to ourselves, that person's not very important. Or we'll ask ourselves questions like, I wonder why they act like that. Or I wonder why they dress like that. Producing a sense of superiority and making us think that we've got it all figured out. That because of how we dress or how we think or how we act is better than somebody, then they must be inferior. What things do we become arrogant about? Well, self. Paul talks about in Romans 12 to think of yourselves with sober minds and not think too highly of yourself. Ultimately, what he's saying is don't think about yourself at all. We become arrogant about our own image. We project importance by doing things by name dropping. Or we work ourselves into every conversation telling the other person that what matters is really me. Why is this dangerous? Well, if you think you're better than somebody, do you really love them? It's also exhausting. I don't know if you've ever been arrogant. I, I bet you find it hard to believe that I was at one point. It's exhausting. Think about the image that someone has to project across their entire social network and the things that they have to do to keep that image up. That's very tiring, is it not? Why don't you just be yourself? Because you're afraid of what somebody else might think about you. So what? You know, I, Dave Ramsey always talks about buying an expensive car and impressing that person at the intersection you're never going to meet. <laughs> I mean, that's a good way of putting it, yeah? Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride comes before the fall. You know, going back to that image management across your whole entire social network, the question is, how real is your social network if you're an arrogant person? You ever think about that? I mean, that's nice. You've got so many followers on Facebook. Are they friends? If you are out of food and stuff at home during this pandemic, are they going to be the first ones you call to help you out? Now, I'm not saying it's everybody. 
the overarching principle really is that comparison always leads to carnality, which is just another word for sin. And while we all struggle with envy and arrogance, we tend to habitually fall to one side or the other. Well, good news. God's got some words to help you out if you fall into one of these categories. First, the envious. The envious must believe that God is good and that he has sovereignly and wisely, wisely given everything that is best to fulfill his purpose through your life. Have you ever stopped and just thought about that? Like everything, whether you've encountered it, you're going through it, is in your life to serve a purpose for your betterment. Now, everybody knows in here, in 2015, I had a stroke. Life-altering, right? And gosh, sat there and wondered, why am I going through this? That's where hindsight really comes into play. It's like, you know what? God allowed that into my life to make me into a better person. Again, like I said towards the beginning part, what John Rem said, I had a life that God wanted for me, and he didn't want me to waste it. He had to get my attention somehow. Now, that doesn't mean I'm perfect. I'm sure I could start a line from here out the door that would, people would tend to tell me all the things that I've done wrong. I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm not arrogant anymore to believe that I'm not perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. But I want to make the right mistakes, if that makes any sense. There's a place, I think, in North Dakota that says their motto, their town's motto is only new mistakes. That's a cute motto, right? You're going to learn from your past ones and continue to move forward and make them, but as long as you're continually learning, you're not making the same ones again, right? Because insanity is doing the same thing over and 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 over again expecting different results. I'm not insane. <laughs> Just had to throw that in there. So the envious. Admit your envy, repent, and seek d complete deliverance. My favorite passage on this is 1 John 1.9. Repent. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and not only forgive us our sins, but purify us from all unrighteousness. Not just a little bit, all of it. Who in here doesn't want to be pure? Right? The church answer is, yeah, of course I want to be pure. Are you living in such a way that reflects that you want to be pure? Confess your sins. If there's anybody in your life that you can picture in your mind that you feel inferior to, or you feel better than, confess it now. <laughs> Learn to redirect your thoughts and actions to reflect Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 in the message translation. If you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up 
and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though it may be invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. Emphasis added. We can't do anything on our own. It is only through him who strengthens me. I love how the message translation put that. See things from his perspective. Ask God to use you and convert envy into fruits worthy of repentance. John the Baptist talked about this when he was admonishing the religious leaders. He said, turn away from your sins. Turn to God and prove it by a changed life. I don't know how many times I have to say it, but actions speak louder than words. If you remember that old chestnut from James, where even the demons believe in God, but guess what? They intellectually believe in God, but nothing that they do changes the fact that they're demons. You can have an intellectual faith, that's great, but if your life isn't living it out, what good is it? Philippians 2, 1 through 4. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Whew. I probably just could have read that one this morning and been done, right? That one speaks volumes. Dr. Martin Luther King, if you didn't know, spent his entire life trying to be better and do things for the betterment of others. Whether or not you agree with his methods or his theology or whatever, he lived his life for the betterment of others. Meditate on God's goodness and generosity by expressing gratitude and thankfulness for how you are different. I already mentioned it before. Quit comparing yourself. You're not me. I'm not you. You're not Pastor Dan. You're not supposed to be. Did you ever think about that? God sees you. He created you in a perfect fashion. He made Jimmy, Jimmy. He made Heather, Heather. He made Bob, Bob. Be the best of those that you can be. Work on focusing on excellence. Excellence, in my opinion, is right here. This defines excellence. Ronald Reagan said there's nothing that's ever happened to humanity that's not in here. This is excellence. Follow Christ. It's real simple. So be thankful about how you are different. Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always and delight in your faith. Be unceasing and persistent in prayer. I believe Jessica did Sunday school today on uh, unity and prayer. 
in every situation, no matter what the circumstance, be thankful and continually give thanks to God, for this is the will of God in you by Christ Jesus. Did you, Did you hear the last part of that verse? This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. We all talk about how we want God's will in our life. I think Paul just said it right there. First Thessalonians, or yeah, First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Now, moving on to the arrogant. The arrogant must admit their need and choose to be vulnerable in order to receive the goodness of God in their daily experience. Now, I've heard recent uh, business leadership people talking about, you ever heard the motto, never let them see you sweat? And now it's changed to where people are, let them see you sweat, because more likely the people are going to identify with your leadership better if they know that you're not all together and that you have issues they're more likely to follow you and respect you, knowing that you're not perfect, that you're not sitting at a, on a throne of, this is how I did it, and this is how you should do it kind of thing. So the arrogant must remember everything is given from God. James 1.17, every gift God freely gives is good and perfect, streaming down from the Father of lights, who shines from the heavens with no hidden shadow or darkness and is never subject to change. Psalm 84:11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows grace and favor and honor. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing will he withhold. Everything comes from God. Real simple, right? If, if you struggle with arrogance, remember where you came from. Psalm 22, 9 through 10. The Lord... Lord, you delivered me safely from my mother's womb. You are the one who cared for me ever since I was a baby. Since the day I was born, I've been placed in your custody. You've cradled me throughout my days. I've trusted in you, and you've always been my God. David's talking about a sense of humility. He knows where he came from. Do you? Sometimes we need to hang around people that know us from before we were successful or before we took on a certain leadership role because you know what anything that we do is probably not going to impress them because they know who we were and where we came from hebrews 10 25 puts it like this it's not time to pull away and neglect meeting together as some of you have formed the habit of doing because we need each other in fact we should come together even more frequently eager to encourage and urge each other onward as we anticipate the day that is dawning, Christ's return. Wow, Hebrews is talking about coming to church more or being the church body, Christ's body, more often. I think it's been real easy for a lot of people to not come to church, which I'm not saying anything badly, but it's been real easy and comfortable to not come because of what's going on. We, we, can we take preventative measures so that everybody is safe, but a mask and hand sanitizer is not going to necessarily keep you from the virus. It's going to help prevent it, but it's not going to keep you. So I, I can understand where some are coming from. But if we're only in a state of fear, then who's winning? Admit your need for others in your life. It's real easy to get ahead on your own. 
John Maxwell talks about the turtle on the fence post. Have you ever heard that illustration before? If you know what a turtle is, right? Everybody's familiar with a turtle? Can the turtle get on the fence post by itself? Can we get to where we are on our own? In human terms, maybe. But if we can't get to where we need to be, which is in heaven on our own, I think it's imperative that we have Christ in our lives, first and foremost. But we also need other Christians, people that you can trust, people that you can talk to, people that you can be vulnerable with, expressing your sins or whatever it is, to get help. That's where the small groups are very important. That's where church is very important. That's where being engage, engaging and relational is very important. 1 Corinthians 3.3 3. For you are living your lives dominated by the mindset of flesh. Ask yourselves, is there jealousy among you? Do you compare yourselves with others? Do you quarrel like children and end up taking sides? If so, this proves that you are living lives centered on yourselves, dominated by the mindset of the flesh, and behaving like unbelievers. Man, Paul's really bringing the wood from the woodshed today. I mean, we read passages sometimes and just kind of gloss over that kind of stuff. But I don't know how you can. Paul is saying the body of Christ must be relational and engaging. Because if you're envious, the bones are going to start to rot. And if you're arrogant, how are you really loving somebody? Especially like Christ. I don't know if where Shelly's at. But as I get ready to close... I want to reread to you James 3, 13 through 16. I mentioned it earlier where it said, So wherever jealousy, wherever jealousy and selfishness are uncovered, you will also find many troubles and every kind of nastiness. So that's the Passion Translation. James 3, 13 through 16, to wrap all this up. In, from the message translation. Do you want to be counted wise? I think that's a pretty simple answer, right? Do you, do you want to be counted wise? I do. Right? Solomon wanted to be so wise, he asked God for his wisdom. Do you want to build a reputation for wisdom? Guess what? Here's what you do. James's three simple steps. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. It's the way you live, not the way you talk, that counts. How many times have I said that today? Actions speak louder than words. James has said it. Paul has said it. John the Baptist said it in Luke. Actions speak louder than words. 
Mean-spirited ambition isn't wisdom. Boasting that you are wise isn't wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourself sound like you're wise isn't wisdom. It's the furthest thing from it. Whenever you're trying to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at each other's throats. Last time I checked, that is not what the church is meant to look like. We have to get out of our own ways a lot of times. Stop comparing ourselves to people, either that people that we think has got it all together, or people that we think we're better than. We gotta stop. Because envy and arrogance are gonna ruin us. So I have just some questions to leave you with before we start singing. You do know the altar is always open, right? If you are dealing with somebody in your life, if you can picture them in your heart, in your mind, that one, you don't feel like you measure up to, or two, you feel like you're better than, Christ is calling you to repent. He wants you to change your heart so that you serve them, so that you love them, so that you see yourself the way God sees you. I struggle with that all the time. Believe it or not, I have body composition issues. I can't look at myself in the mirror without feeling a certain way. Just how I grew up. But I need to get over that because I am Chris. God made me and sees me more than just fleshy. He even says so in 1 Samuel 16, 7. God does not look at outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And he wants your heart. He wants it to be perfect. He wants to mold it so that you see people the way he sees people. It's real easy in this time of pandemic to be judgmental towards somebody because they're not doing something, they're different, whatever. It's real easy. Because we have a lot of anger that's built up from our fear, which psychologically, anger comes directly from fear. We've got to stop. We've got to be the church in this time of pandemic. Because if we're not, then ultimately what we're saying is what we've been doing all these years is not sustainable and it's broken. Now is the time to be Christ's body. So are you okay with the lack of growth, not only numerically, but spiritually amongst so many so-called Christians? Do you disagree that church as we know it has been challenged and that something deeper may be going on? Do you enjoy constantly comparing yourself with others? And are you okay with being envious or arrogant? Are you okay with having shallow, surface-level relationships with a pleasantry here and there and the back of someone's head, and we call it church? If you answer no to these then how are you and I going to be different? Not say that we're going to be different, but be different. Because it's really about being relational and engaging. Is that really a ridiculous idea? Shouldn't that be how the church is defined? I go to Free Life Community Church because they're relational, because they're engaging. I know who I turn to when I had this or this go on in my life. Right? Is being in a small group such a horrible idea? Is it really? 
We'll make time for, well, baseball's on. I got to make time for that. I can't, can't not watch my Red Sox, right? <laughs> but do you hear how ridiculous that sounds compared to what I'm talking about? That's my arrogance saying sports is more important than Christian fellowship. So what's keeping us from being relational and engaging with one another? You'll just have to tune in next week to find that out. And what the answer is. The altar is open. Christ is calling you. The Spirit is moving somebody. Don't feel shame or anything if you come to this altar. Because we all, this is a universal thing that we all struggle with. We all need a change of heart. We, repentance is not just merely saying you're sorry. Repentance is taking action and wanting to change. So I pray that as we sing, this altar would be flooded. If not the altar itself, that your, that your heart and your mind would be flooded with prayer and repentance. Thanks for listening to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. For more great biblically sound teaching, visit freelifecc.com.